series, and it is one of our spiritual formation series, meaning that we regularly return to series that discuss either practical ways or overarching themes of what it looks like to be shaped in the image of Jesus, and what does that look like in our modern context, in our modern world. So we've done series like Sabbath and prayer and scripture and fasting. And we've done series that have been more like zoomed out. And this is one of them. And we're calling it the gift of obedience. And we are in this series trying to re-examine what word gets freighted often with a lot of baggage, particularly a sense of lack of freedom and lack of joy and a need to conform myself to something of an exterior expectation or responsibility or tradition that will steal life. And we're trying to really pull back that and look at it a second time and say, almost like a, you know, a revisionist history episode and be like, is that really the actual story that's going on here? And we in this series are going to get practical. In fact, next week, we're going to start to get very practical, but these first several weeks have been very high level and not necessarily focusing on like, you know, how do I actually go about the work of obedience and the grace of the Spirit? But this week, bear with us one more as we remain at 10,000 feet and talk about the story and the power of obedience. This is actually wasn't originally part of the series when we mapped it out initially. We told you at the beginning that we had seven teachings, but we also gave ourselves two flex weeks because every once in a while you get in a series and you're like, oh, duh, we need to talk about this. And it was actually last week that we were, I was sitting uh, in the teaching, listening to Satchel, and uh, I was with my wife, Sharon, and she like leans over and she's like, I just thought of another teaching. And later that night, she laid it out to me and she did all the work, and now I'm just going to represent her thoughts because she's in Soma Kids. Um, and so, regardless, this is asking the question of why does obedience matter? And in order to do that, I'm going to walk through the meta narrative of four books of the Bible that are wildly unpopular to read together, and that's First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And because you read them and you get through First and Second Kings, and there's a lot of repetitiveness, and then you get through First and Second Chronicles, and it's exactly the same stories, just told over again in a different way. And this is a lot of times where you're just, and not to mention First uh, First Chronicles starts out with like ten chapters of genealogies, and it's just rough reading if you would like an entertaining read and. I want to just zoom out and look at all of the stories without comment here at the beginning, because I think you're going to start picking up a pattern, and then at the end we'll come back and we'll, we'll tie some things together. Sound good? Um, it doesn't matter if it does. Um, <laughs> so the story of Kings doesn't start actually in 1 Kings, it starts in 2 Samuel or actually First and Second Samuel, which is a series that we're going to be going into at the beginning of 2024 and just walking through what we call the Scroll of Samuel, because it was all originally one scroll. And in the Scroll of Samuel, you get the people of God asking for a king, and God says, this isn't going to go well for you because I'm your king. 
And they say, we want to be like the other nations, so he gives them Saul, and King Saul is a wicked and evil king. But then David comes along, and King too is the most famous and most known figure, one of the most known figures of all the Old Testament. And David is a man after God's own heart. He follows after Yahweh, and he seeks to lead the people to do so as well. And he does really well until 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is also a very well-known story in which David is up on his roof or up at the palace and sees a woman bathing on his roof and he wants to have her and so he sends his servant to get her even though his servant is like, hey, you do know that's Uriah the Hittite's wife, which if you know who Uriah the Hittite is, if you also know the story of David, he has this group that he calls his mighty men, which is not the chorus of a musical but is this group of warriors that like fight for him and basically when he meets them out in the wilderness when he's running for Saul, these guys become like the guys who are like his band of brothers. And one of them is Uriah the Hittite. And so his servant is saying, hey, you know that's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, right? But David doesn't care. And so he goes and he takes Bathsheba and he knows her in a biblical sense. And she becomes pregnant, which is a problem. So David sends Uriah, he first tries to get Uriah home and get him drunk and just say, hey, go, you know, spend some time with your wife so that there can be a cover story here. And that doesn't work. Uriah is so faithful to David that he says, I, and the men that he's fighting with, he's like, I won't go in and be with my wife and all my other compatriots are out there on the field of battle. Uriah is so noble in this story that it makes it all the more twisted when David sends the note in Uriah's hand that says, send Uriah to the front of the lines, and Uriah is killed. And then Nathan the prophet shows up and says to David, hey, um, he tells this whole story about like, hey, there was this guy with a, these, all these sheep, and then there was this guy with only one sheep, and he loved his sheep, and he pet his sheep, and it becomes like Chris Farley with his little pet and Tommy boy, and like loves this sheep so dearly and sleeps next to the sheep, and then eventually, the man who has many sheep decides to take the guy's one sheep. And David gets incensed by this story and says, we should kill that guy. If this is real, if you're just telling me something, if you're reporting news, then I'm going to kill that guy. And of course, Nathan has the moment where he's like, you're the man. And he said, because you've done this, the kingdom's going to be ripped out of your hand by your own line. I'm going to preserve a little bit of a seed because I've said I'd be faithful to you and you have obeyed me in every other way. But it's going to enter in a, a whole level of chaos because you've disobeyed. And not only that, this child's going to die. And that's exactly what happens. And David, after it happens, he gets up and he moves forward and he says, yeah, yeah, this is, this is, the right harvest for the seeds that I sowed. If you sow a field of chaos, you should expect to reap chaos. And David gets that. And so then this starts the stories of First and Second Kings. And again, it just becomes immediately starting off with 
another seemingly really good king in King Solomon, and actually he is the son of Bathsheba and David, so actually the next son that comes from them is this seed that goes forward and becomes great King Solomon, and Solomon is known for being the wisest king, and you play out for several chapters seeming like Solomon is actually leading the people of Israel in a way that even David failed to do, and he even is given the opportunity to build the temple, which David wanted to do, but God said to him, no, you've killed so many people, there's too, many blood, no, too much blood on your hands, I'm going to have your son do it. So Solomon, who does not have the same blood on his hands, is the one who gets to build the temple before God, and he's leading all the people in the temple before God until he eventually, and you start reading the story, he starts picking up wives, and he starts collecting them, and their wives, not only is he, you know, all of a sudden a polyamorous going on around with these wives, but he becomes one who is collecting wives from other nations, and they slowly but surely sway his heart to start worshiping all their gods. And you start to see these things fall, and then God comes to Solomon, and he says, hey, this is the moment that I talk about David. The kingdom is going to be ripped out of your hand. I'm going to save for you two kingdoms, which become Judah and Benjamin. We said all the other ones are getting ripped out. And then it comes out the story of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And God goes to Jeroboam, and he says, hey, I'm ripping the kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I'm giving ten of them to you. Ten of the nations that make over the ten of the tribes will become northern kingdom, and it will become the northern kingdom of Israel. And two of them will be saved for Rehoboam, the lion of, of Solomon. He says, hey, you're going to continue to have this, and they become the southern kingdom of Judea. And so in these two kingdoms, immediately Jeroboam God is saying to Jeroboam, like, hey, I've now given you this kingdom. If you follow me, if you follow in obedience, then I'm going to bless you and the kingdom will flourish. And if you don't, this is going to go bad like all the kings that you've read to this point. And of course, Jeroboam immediately gets into a place where he begins setting up altars to other gods. And so, Jeroboam is marked down as a wicked king, and then we all of a sudden cut over to Rehoboam, who's now leading over the southern kingdom of Judea. And the same problems start happening with Rehoboam. And then throughout the book, you are going to read king after king after king. And it's just going to go ping-ponging back and forth chronologically. Like, here's the king that's in Judea while this king was in Israel. And then he dies, and then the next one becomes king. And while this guy was king, this guy died. And now he, you know, we're going to show you the next one in Judea or in Israel while he was king in Judea. And then they continue to go back and forth. And a couple times you have a few in a row because they just started cycling through kings really quickly in Israel. But in Judea, they lived a little bit longer because... There was a little bit more faithfulness because you see this pattern again begin to emerge. And it's a question of will these kings decide to do good or to do evil? And what is defined clearly story after story after story of what is it to do good? What is it to obey? And there's three things that you start to see. You see the question, will the kings worship Yahweh alone? Will they simply dedicate themselves to Yahweh who has brought them out of Egypt, who has given them a kingdom, who has set them before God and is blessing them? Will they serve him alone? Secondly, will they rid God's people of the idols of 
the Baal and the Asherah and these other spiritual beings that people worship to that enter in when Solomon begins taking his wives? And thirdly, will they be faithful to the covenant of the Torah? Will they continue to walk in obedience and lead the people to do so? Northern Israel goes terribly bad. Both, you're going to see 20 kings from both. You'll see 20 kings of northern Israel. You'll see 20 kings from southern Judea. Northern Israel goes 0 and 20. They are the Detroit Lions of the kingdoms of Israel, which I know Detroit's like weirdly good right now, but I actually follow, like Detroit was my team from like four years old because I grew up in a place where there was no teams. Everyone just picked a team. And I liked Barry Sanders. I liked Blue. I set them on board, and they made me suffer for all of my life. And we're the first team to go completely un a completely unwinning season. Uh, made history. And so five years I was here, and like, you know what? Detroit has not really worked for my fandom over this time. I'm going to be a Colts fan. And we moved over. It was a good time. And it's been up and down. But regardless, it was better, it's better than Detroit. And all of a sudden, now they're doing well just to spite me. And this has become a weird parenthetical. Then I'm now going to move back. Um, regardless, you get northern Israel, 0-20. Southern Judea, a little bit better. 8-12, still a losing record. But they get eight kings who are mar marked as they do good. Now you're going to see first, let's just really quickly walk through uh, northern Israel. So again, first you get Jeroboam. Not only does he set up idols, but the first story you get about Jeroboam is him realizing, hey, all of my people in northern Israel are still called to go sacrifice at the temple, which is in Jerusalem. So they have to go to, through Judea. And if they keep doing that, I might lose some people over time. And so I'm going to make my own capital, my own temple. And I'm going to make a place where people can sacrifice more conveniently here, though that would be not faithful to the Torah. And so he builds two golden calves. And if you've read the story of Israel, a huge siren begins going off. Because the moment they get out of Egypt and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and they say, we will be faithful to Yahweh, he has saved us, and Moses is up there for a little too long, they melt down the gold they took from Israel and make a golden calf. And Aaron the priest says, here's your God who led you out of Egypt. And so in the same moment, Jeroboam makes two golden calves and he says, here's your God who led you out of Egypt. Literally the same phrase. And they begin sacrificing to him. And then you get, again, wicked king after wicked king, and you even get one Ahab. Ahab, they're going to sit here and zoom in for quite a long time because this is Ahab who is the king that Elijah comes to and has that whole showdown with the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. And so uh, there's, yeah, this whole time where you have, you know, we'll get in that story later, but regardless, it's somewhat notable, and so this is Ahab, and it says of Ahab that he does more evil than all of the kings before him. It says that he, it was too light of thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. It's like the sins of Jeroboam were not enough for him, that he then takes a Sidonian wife who's Jezebel, and he worships Baal. He erects an altar to the house of Baal, which he erects in Samaria. He makes a temple to Baal and an altar to him. And then he also makes an Asherah, another spiritual being that he worships. 
and he did more to provoke God than all before him. And then eventually you just see it spiral and spiral and spiral until eventually you get Hosea. Hosea in 1 Kings 17 also does bad. But he pays tribute to Assyria at the time. And uh, sorry, Syria. Syria, not Assyria. Confusing, but both a major part of the story. So he pays tribute to Syria because like, Syria is going to like take him out. Uh, so he decides, like, I'm just going to be like a doormat and pay tribute to them every year. But then one year, he not only messages Egypt, and Syrian king finds out about it and is really ticked, but he also forgets to pay tribute. It's like when you thought your automatic payment was set up, and it wasn't. And so he gets really ticked, and he comes, and he sieges northern Israel for three years, takes them out eventually, and then removes them all to exile. And that's the end of the northern kingdom. And then we always are in the midst of it going back to the other side, the southern kingdom of Judea. And again, we have a little bit better here. We have people like uh, King Asa, who removes the cults and the altars uh, from Judea that were set up through Solomon. Uh, he does, uh, oh, but it says this little parenthetical that, that makes such a big deal in all of the king's lives. It says he removes all the cults, he removes all the, the prophet or the idol worship, but he doesn't take away the high places. And high places were just these high temples that were used to, to worship someone other than Yahweh. And a lot of them times it says they don't even use them anymore. There's no worship of other gods going on, but it just seems to note to each one, he just doesn't take them down. And after king after king after king, whether it's Asa and then eventually Jehoshaphat, who was actually, ironically, known for being able to jump really high, which is why we get the term jumping Jehoshaphat, which is not relevant nor actually true, but we'll move on. Jehoaz then comes in 2 Kings 13, 4 through 9, and saying, hey, he's doing good, but he doesn't remove the high places. And then you get Jehoash in 2 Kings chapter 12, who does good, but does not remove the high places. And it's the same with Amaziah and Azariah. And then you get Ahaz, who does bad, because he sets up an altar and sacrifices his son. And God is very clear, that's not worship to me. And so Ahaz has issues with Syria too, and he actually gets spared from Syria because he makes a treaty with Assyria, and they kind of like get this protection situation going on. And Assyria enters into the narrative at this point and will become a thorn in the side of Judea for the rest of the time until a bigger kingdom takes them both out. And then you get the last section of the book of 2 Kings. And it tells you about three main kings. One is Hezekiah, and on the other you get Josiah. Both of these they talk about in remarkable terms. 
that these were the best kings of yet, that they destroy everything. They even at times take down high places. They, I mean, Josiah founds the, finds the Torah and like it had been completely lost and he reads it and he's just like, oh no. And like he just then says like, we have to change everything about who we are. And he does it and he leads all the people to worship. But in the middle, there's Manasseh. And Manasseh is the most wicked king of Judea because he sets up all the altars in between them and he institutes child sacrifice as now a regular thing. And at this point, in the midst of these two great kings who undo the work that was done before them and in undoing the work of Manasseh, God says, Israel's, or sorry, Judea at this point is too far gone and they're being taken out. And that's what you get with Babylon now, who is raised to power, sieges Jerusalem, takes the city, and you get the, ba the Babylonian exile, which is a major theme then of the Old Testament and the scriptures. And at the end of the book of First and Second Kings, you ask a question. Is God done with the line of David? Because both of them just got taken out. And both of them are in exile. And so as you read both these stories, you see the patterns emerge. And then you start to, you're meant to treat these stories a lot like social stories of like sometimes they're not going to tell you a moral at the end of it. They're not going to be really explicit of like, hey, this was good or this was bad or you should do this or you shouldn't do this. They're just going to tell you the story and then you just read the natural consequences that come. Like Asa, it's going to talk about, hey, he did good, but he didn't take out the high places and at the end of his life he gets a foot disease. And it's just these random details. They're like, is the foot disease connected to high places? And it seems to be in the story, though it doesn't necessarily like a direct thing. He didn't take down the high places, and they were foot disease spreaders, and they end up giving him a foot disease. Like, it's not as clean like we like it to make it in our lives. But it continues to show, hey, there is a way in which if you sow the seeds of chaos and disobedience, then you should expect to reap the harvest of chaos and disobedience. And Jesus, at the end of his longest recorded teaching in the scriptures, his most well known, the Sermon on the Mount. I've heard the Sermon on the Mount like taught kind of like two different paradigms. One is like, hey, you better really get serious and stop sinning. If you are having an issue with lust, cut your hands off, do whatever you got to do, which is true and right, but it's like this level of like, just stop it. And you leave listening to the Sermon on the Mount being like, I feel really condemned because I don't feel like I can love my enemies like that. I feel like I really struggle with these sins that plague me like anger and bitterness and, and holding on to what is mine and trying to that human part of nature that's just like I need to take care of me and mine because no one else will and then the other paradigm is like hey these are all really hard to obey and you kind of feel guilty but I set up that guilt just to make you say hey Jesus fulfilled this perfectly on your behalf and so therefore because of his death and resurrection you need not really obey it like you should try but if you don't get it that's okay 
But then Jesus concludes his teaching in a very different way than either of those. He just concludes it with what we just read. He tells a simple story that he doesn't necessarily give you a strong moral line of like, this is what's going to happen. He just puts it at the end of his sermon. He says, hey, there's two people. One of them builds their house on a rock, and one of them builds it on sand, and great storms come on both. Just, we always reference, but I just love that fact that it's like, the Bible doesn't say like, if the storms come, but when the storms come. It's not like the good man didn't get the storms, but when the storms come. I love that fact, not because it's like, well, that's really dark, you want storms to come. No, but storms have come in my life and yours, and it's just good to know that it's not because I have not taken down the high places. So either way, you get the moment that the storm comes for both, and one will stand, and one's going to be destroyed. And the last sentence he says, and great will be the crash. And he's done. And you're meant to walk away realizing two things. One, and I've heard this retitling of the Sermon on the Mount, and I actually think is really effective. If you want to retitle for the Sermon on the Mount, like one that's like actually about the content, you could call it this. How to live life to the full in light that the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God is here now. Jesus saying, hey, all the ways that you've been trying to live that's been creating chaos and not working, good news, my kingdom's here. It's not coming in a little bit, it's here now, and you have the ability to enter into my kingdom now, not just like, you know, believe something and then die and go to heaven, but you have an opportunity to live with shalom, life to the full, now. And how do you do it? You begin to live in these ways that says, I trust that someone else is taking care of me better than I can take care of me. And so, if you do that, you're going to become like one who's filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Storms are going to come, but you will still be like the one who's planted by streams of living water that even in the dry and weary season, you still produce fruit. I always point out the dry and weary season and still producing fruit is not like I'm in the dry and weary season, but I'm just like rise above it all with like this cool headedness. But it's like, no, I'm suffering in the dry and weary season. But Christ-likeness continues to come out of me because I trust that someone else is taking care of me more than I could take care of me. And I've been so affected by his life that it begins to, you bump the water of salt water and salt water comes out, but if you bump the, the glass of sweet water, sweet water comes out. And so I'm getting bumped all around, but there's something else coming out. And so let's just tie this together with a few things and make this relevant to the series right now. To take things like the Sermon on the Mount and make it like you just need to obey harder will leave you condemned and hopeless. It is a, an abuse of the story of grace and mercy of Jesus to say you just got to do it better, and can't you stop now? But equally, 
to take the Sermon on the Mount and say, hey, Jesus has fulfilled it on my behalf, and so, yeah, if I can get it, great, but if I can't, whatever, grace abounds. That could be true. But in the book of Romans in chapter 8, Paul's going to say, hey, there's no condemnation for you now who are in Christ Jesus. Good news. There's no condemnation for your sin, past, present, future. But the spirit that now lives in you is going to begin to produce looking like Jesus. And it's not meant for you to say, oh, if I don't start getting it together, then I must not have been justified. Paul actually goes the other way around. He says, no, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because there's no condemnation for you, now as you bask in that reality, you are slowly but surely going to become like the one who builds their house on the rock. And when the storms come, it stands. And so, just a couple quick application points. One, consequences are real, and they, do not be, they are not removed because of the grace of God. Sometimes that's what I want. I want to be able to sow a field of chaos and then say, whoops, like, God forgive me. And here's the good news, God does. And I am free from the guilt of my sin. But God shows up to the kings over and over and over again. And some of the wicked ones are even going to have moments of repentance, which we'll look at here in just a quick second. And he says, hey, you, because of this, like, you are now free from the weight of this. In fact, some of them, like, he even will. He doesn't remove the consequence, but he says, I'll delay it. It'll happen to your kid. Which you're like, whoa, how is that fair? But God is merely making the point in the reality, hey, the shoe has to drop eventually. If you throw disobedience up in the air, the consequence eventually comes back down like gravity. So I'll give you the mercy of delaying it, but there's no removing this because consequences for the good or the bad are merely just the reality design of the world. And we like that. We like the fact with our deep sense of justice that if I am going to sow chaos and destroy people's lives, that eventually that consequence is going to, it's not going to produce life for me. I talked about this uh, yesterday with uh, Sharon and my parents. We were talking about the series Breaking Bad. And that's um, a hard watch. Uh, a brilliant show. But one thing that Sharon said, one thing that's actually really just weirdly kind of like encouraging about it is it never portrays sin as helpful. And every time the characters in the story turn to save their necks, it gets worse and worse and worse. And the consequence and the weight of everything keeps piling up until it smashes everybody. And that's the show. That's pretty much it. Um, just saved you, what, five, six seasons. Um, so yeah, consequences. Uh, grace is powerful, real, and it's why I stand before this, 
father as a son with the resume of Jesus. And my future sin is, is blotted out as my past. But the future sin that I choose to participate will continue to give me consequences. Why? Because it's just reality. It's just gravity. You can try to fight it. You can try to bend reality to your will. Good luck. Number two, in the midst of kings, you get these little snippets in the midst of all like, hey, disobedience does this, and disobedience continues to bring chaos. You also get this picture of what the power of obedience does. And interestingly enough, you don't get this pure obedience from any of the kings. Again, even the best of them don't really take down the high places. They all kind of mess up at one point. Hezekiah seems to like be doing everything right, and then he gives their story at the end of his life where the Babylonians come in, and he shows them all the gold, and then like immediately kind of says, like a prophet comes to him, like, hey, everything that you showed to the Babylonians, they're going to come take, and it's the prophecy about the exile. And then you look at Second Chronicles, and you're like, why was that a problem? Like, him just giving them a tour. It says, like, no, he's, at one point, Hezekiah is sick, he prays, God heals him, and it says he becomes proud. And then the next story is him then showing all the treasure in the temple. And again, it doesn't tell you, hey, showing the treasure in the temple was wrong and prideful, at least not in, in kings. But it just shows you the result. They're going to take everything that you just showed them. And, and so you don't get anyone pure in obedience except for two people, one in First Kings, one in Second Kings. One of them, is that, no, 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 sorry. One of them is in northern Israel. And Elijah predicts drought, and drought comes and ravages northern Israel. But in the midst of that, all of a sudden, in the middle of all these stories of kings, Elijah finds a widow, a poor little widow with a son. And he says, could you bring me water? And she does it. And then she says, he says, can you make me a cake? Which is probably not like, we're not talking like funfetti here. We're talking about like just like a piece of bread. And she's like, well, I only have a little flour and a little oil, and I was on my way to make this cake to feed to me and my son so that we might die with a little less discomfort. This is our last meal. And he says, hey, you go make one for me first, and you're not going to run out of flour or oil this entire time that we're in drought. And she obeys. She brings him, not the second cake, the first one. And then she goes to make the second one, and she never runs out of flour or oil for the remainder of the drought. The next story is even talk about then her son after that immediately gets sick and dies. And it's the first story of resurrection in all the scriptures. Elijah goes in and resurrects her son. And the message is really clear. Walking in a way that trusts, hey, I'm not the one who takes care of me. There's another one who takes care of me, and I can trust and walk in obedience. Brings life, brings new life, and life to the full. And the second one you get is in Second Kings. You get Naaman, who's an Assyrian uh, general, and he has leprosy. And he goes to Elisha. And he says, hey, can I get, like, I, I can pay you if you can take away my leprosy. I hear you heal people. It's this whole picture of Jesus because it's the first time a leper is going to go to someone and say, can you heal me? He's going to say, you can't buy this, but just go and wash in the waters of the Jordan. And he goes and he washes and he's clean. 
because he believes if I do something, though it sounds crazy, then I will receive life and life to the full, and he does. And you even get a little note about David in, uh, what is it? It's like 1 Kings 15. I have it somewhere, but it's not here immediately. I think it's 1 Kings 15. Read the whole book. Come on, just read it. Um, and uh, you'll find it there. 1 Kings 15, I believe. Uh, it's one of the kings that starts with an A, and don't get on me because there's like five of them in a row. And it's talking about, is it Ab- Abijah? No, it doesn't even matter. Um, it talks about him, and he's wicked, and he does wrong, but it says he's going to preserve the kingdom. Why? Because David was faithful, except for the moment with Uriah and the Hittite. It actually says that. He's like, he was totally faithful, except for that one thing that we all started this whole chaos thing with. But because of that, I'm going to be faithful to all of Judea, because the power of obedience is actually outweighing the power of disobedience in this whole meta-narrative. And yeah, even though Judea, it goes bad repeatedly, it goes a little bit better for a lot, little bit longer, and even when they get taken out, they return, and the redemption story will eventually come through the house of Judea, the house of Judah specifically. Third here. It's never too late to repent from disobedience and to walk in obedience. Often I think we miscategorize repentance in our minds as feeling remorseful. But the word for repentance is always going to have a connotation of turning around the other direction. Your remorse leads you to turn around. It's not, I feel terrible, but I just can't. And it's not meant to be like, yeah, like I struggle with sin and I struggle falling in. Like that's part of the normal process. But the idea of repentance is that you turn again and again and again. If you want to sum up spiritual formation, maybe in a quick little sentence, it's just the capacity to keep turning around. And slowly but surely, the periods of turning in the direction of obedience get longer and longer and longer and longer. Doesn't happen a lot on the front end. It's very much so like the um, uh, the compound interest theory. Got to put a lot of time in at the beginning, and eventually it starts paying off at a long time from now. But if you don't start now, there'll be nothing in the future. And the, it's never too late. It's just this really powerful moment that comes out a couple times, and it comes out with two kings. And this is there's one king uh, that shows up and uh, that it happens to in Israel, which is Ahab, which we already talked about. It's like one of the worst kings of, of Israel. In fact, I think he's marked as like, this is the worst king. Nobody before or after him in Israel is as bad as Ahab. And then it talks about this one moment in 1 Kings 21. And in the translation of the ESV, it puts this little parentheses in the front of it, and I like the idea it's in parentheses, because what it says is it says in uh, 1 Kings 21, 25 through 29, it says this, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, who Jezebel was uh, his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done from the Lord, uh, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So it starts with parentheses, uh, parentheses. No one's worse than this guy. Immediately following. And when Ahab heard these words of the prophet that come earlier in the story, 
He tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went out dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishabite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now Ahaz later then turns back again to disobedience and then the prophecy that said was going to happen like he was going to die and the dogs are going to lick his blood in the streets does end up happening because he eventually just still says he turns to God and then he turns back away again. Consequences are real. But the other one which is really compelling is in Judea because you don't get it in Kings but you get it in Second Chronicles and it's the story of Manasseh who again is the worst king possibly of both kingdoms. And is the reason it says, like, Israel's too far gone. Because he says he's going to set up all the altars, he's going to worship all the gods, and he's going to set up the institution of child sacrifice. And that's when God says, this is done. But in Second Chronicles 33.10, it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. He's the worst of them all. And in a moment, in chains, on hooks, he prays. And it's not too late for him. It doesn't matter how far down the road you are. It is never too late. Fourth and lastly, and I got to go quick because this is actually most important. It's impossible to obey perfectly outside of the Spirit of God, which was all what Satchel was talking about last week, which I think is actually what cued Sharon in to say, like, hey, there needs to be another teaching that talks about, you can talk powerfully about the idea that the Spirit of God now moves in you to produce the fruit of the Spirit, and now you can walk away out of this fruit and into this fruit, but until you read the story of the kings and realize person after person, oh person after person, can not obey. That's what makes Galatians 5 so freaking mind-blowing that now Paul is saying, hey, because of Jesus, you now have it. What is it? My spirit. To begin to slowly but surely through repentance again and again and again with a compound interest theory, begin to live a life of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness self-control.
the life we all want to live, if we're honest. This whole teaching is meant to now leave us in the moment of like, okay, great, now how do I go forward? We'll start there next week.